Different generations communicate differently. If we're speaking across generations, we need to understand how different generations hear. Hello and welcome back to the God Story Podcast. I'm Brent Siddle and our guest today is with me to talk about communicating across the generations. He's Daryl Hall, a campus pastor of Elizabeth Baptist Church in Conyers, Georgia, where he regularly preaches and teaches across five generations. He's an experienced preacher and public speaker who's given messages in venues from local Bible studies to a packed NBA arena. And Daryl joins me now from the States. Daryl, hi. Hey, how are you, man? I'm glad to be here. Oh, it's a pleasure to have you. Now, I've got to ask you about the packed NBA arena. What was that all about? It was uh, MLK weekend. I was 19 years old, so it was about 16 years ago. And I got an opportunity to deliver a speech at the halftime of the Atlanta Hawks game on MLK Day. Very good. So it was, I would imagine, a fairly terrifying experience. How many people were there? Man, it was dreadful. I think the building was 19,000, if I'm not mistaken. I mean, it was terrifying because the crowd was completely dark. All the lights in the arena were on me. And, you know, um, I had to speak and not forget <laughs> what it was I wanted to say. I was completely overwhelmed. There were some people in the stands who knew me from church. So they were, you know, hey, how you doing? So it was, uh, it was very overwhelming. But hey, I live to, to speak another day. Was it how many people did Charles Spurgeon used to preach to in Victorian London? He probably preached to about fifty thousand every Sunday. Yeah, I think he did. You know, standing room only, people standing outside the building, yeah. opening windows, trying to hear the Prince of Preachers. Absolutely. <laughs> Well, that's part of your baptism of fire. But what was your own baptism of fire when it came to speaking across the generations as a young pastor? Yeah, for me, it was the experience I was thrown into. My church is a multi-site uh, mega church, And so in the Atlanta, Georgia area, we have five locations in the metro area. And as a result of that, my senior pastor would have to travel between campuses to preach live in person every Sunday. And so there will be moments where he couldn't make it back from one campus to another. And I can remember one story that I share in the book. I must have been about 24 years old and I was youth pastor. So I was put into a room of about 100 youth, middle and high school students. And about halfway through my message, I was interrupted by a team from our adult service that warned me that our senior pastor would not return on time. And then I had 10 minutes to wrap up my sermon to the youth and I had to be in the sanctuary full of 2,500 people, and I had to preach in 10 minutes. And uh, I recall just the anxiety. I recall what it felt like to have to take the same message I was I had prepared for middle and high school students and almost on the drop of a hat, delivered in a room full of people, you know, old enough to be my parents, grandparents, and older siblings. Yes. Why is the generational lens, I think, as you put it in your book, the generational lens, why is it so vital to the way people hear preaching? I think it's vital because it is probably one of the cultural lenses we're not aware of. You know, when we think about the demographics of the people we're addressing, some of their lenses are apparent. They're racial or ethnic lenses. They're socioeconomic lenses based upon how much money or wealth they have or possessions. Their educational lenses based upon their degree of formal training, of their gender lenses based upon male or female. And so we see many of the demographic factors that shape the people we communicate to. They're more apparent, political lenses even. 
but it's the generational lens, I think, that is one that's that's gone under the radar that's equally as important. The reason I think it's important is because each generation is shaped during its coming of age years. So I would describe that as about 16 to about 25 to 30. Within that 10 to 15 year window, sociological factors, political factors, world history issues, you know, factors uh, shape the way that generation engages with the world and the way that generation differentiates itself from the ones that came before it and eventually from the ones who will come behind it. And so I believe a lot of people are not even aware of how the era that they were raised in or the time frame they were born in impacts the way they prefer to receive messages. So I think it's something we should uh, we should think about. Yeah. What, why is it so important for preachers to speak into the culture, do you think? I think it's important for preachers to speak into the culture because we serve a risen savior who himself entered culture. The, the pre-incarnate Christ, we believe he lived eternally as a part of the Godhead in heaven, but he took on a body and he poured out himself into the form of a servant and he entered life, you know, as a human and he essentially entered human culture. He engaged in human culture. He, he lived in it real time. It wasn't, you know, this, this you know, perceived, <laughs> you know, oneness with humanity. No, he was the son of man. He, 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 he was born of a, of a woman. And so he entered culture as a human and experienced the layers of culture, like politics and taxes and religion and gender biases and regional biases and all of the above. And he, he experienced it. So if we serve a savior who in the process of bringing the kingdom of God to earth, he entered culture, I think as his, his, his call servants that we too should be as serious about taking the kingdom of God into culture without making this false dichotomy between sacred and secular, assuming that everything that is culture is by definition also secular. Because I don't believe the true are, you know, uh, I don't believe the two are synonymous. I believe that we should get creative I believe we should baptize some aspects of culture, redeem some aspects of culture and leverage them in a cruciform way to support the, the, the kingdom of God and the expansion of the gospel. Okay, I'm a preacher. You're a preacher. We have preachers listening. How can preachers actually use generational intelligence when, when they prepare their talks? Great question. First of all, I think preachers, I would like to encourage us to be open-minded that generational science has a lot to offer to affect the preaching. The open-mindedness to that concept, I think, is the first step. Uh, the next step is to become a student of how generational cohorts are bracketed and how they're shaped through cultural experiences. And that, you know, goes right alongside being a student of people in every other way that we seek to understand the people that we're trying to address. I offer, you know, a tool in the book that I would highly encourage preachers to add to their, their plethora of tools that we use in, in, in sermon prep. And that is a diagram that depicts on an annual basis. It has, it has to be updated annually because the generations age every year. The, the year bracket of the generation, the title or name of that generation, the current life stage of that generation. I think those things we need to keep before our face in whatever room or space that we prepare God's messages in, messages in, 
or whatever tools we we employ in the process of doing that, that we have a tool like that that's visible, that reminds us to always be thinking about the static nature of generational cohorts, but the dynamic nature of life stage progression, and to be sensitive to that as we, you know, shape the rhetoric of our sermons. Can we come on and talk about some of the characteristics of the different generations? This is the bit I found um, I found particularly fascinating. I was particularly interested to learn about my own generation, um, okay. Generation X, nice. which I, I, I'd not done much work on. But what are the characteristics of the elder generation and why was application in a sermon so important to them? Yeah, great question. And so... You know, I appreciate being able to, you know, speak to your audience in in your region of the world. But in order for me to validate this research, I had to keep my scope sort of fixed on my region, not not out of a bias for America over other parts of the world, but out of an honesty of my inability to to, to fairly take this research beyond, you know, the borders of the states. So. In the States, I would define elders as those, obviously those born before 45 is the bracket, the ending bracket. But they were shaped by, you know, the World War. Uh, they were shaped by uh, the Great Depression. They were shaped by, you know, receiving messages via one-way radio. Some of the most pivotal messages of history <laughs> were received in a one-way communication via radio by their generation. So I believe factors like that shape the way they see the world. The reason I think application is so important is because they prefer oppositional preaching on the nose, meaning they prefer you to say what the scripture says. They prefer you to tell them what the scripture says and tell them what that means about what they must do today and give them very clear ways and how they can immediately use exactly what the scripture says without any question, dialogue, debate, a uh, little tension is needed, um, but very clear, right on the nose propositional preaching that is accentuated by. Now, here's how you apply. For example, John 3.16, God so loved the world. God says that if you don't receive his son, you won't spend eternity with him. Here's the very simple application. Today, you must receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Right? That's propositional preaching with a very clear application. Mm, fascinating. Yeah, so... For that generation, definite propositions, black and white, if I can put it like yep. that, interpretation. Yes. Yep. Now, why are baby boomers so diverse coming to the next generation, the boomers? Why are baby boomers so diverse in their preferences for preaching? What happened, what happened between the two generations? Yeah, I think baby boomers are so diverse because they pulled, they intentionally pulled away from the norms that, that they were born into. Um, particularly in the States, it was the boomers that created these metropolises and these great cities and these suburbs around these cities. Also, the boomers stateside were the largest generation in our history. And so the world retrofitted itself around them uh, in a way that they were the bee's knees. They were the, they were the cream of the crop. They were the target of every major you know, uh, employer. They were the target of all major marketing. So as they pulled away from this, you know, rural life, this this way of living that that struggle instilled in their parents, they experienced financial boom. They experienced great success. They experienced, you know, city life. They experienced, you know, urban life. I think for the first time compared to their parents, 
And as a result of the world reshaping itself around them and them reshaping the world, you know, I think that they would always have a skepticism about any proposition. <laughs> because if their parents make this proposition that you should, you know, do this, do this, do that, they would be skeptical because they tried and seen that there's another way to do things. And as boomers, you know, the world reshaping itself around them made uh, made doing things their own way a viable way to approach life. And so when it comes to preaching, they will respect and appreciate a proposition, but you have to get to that proposition through, through skepticism. There has to be a tease. There has to be a, uh, maybe possibly, there has to be a, you know, an edge to the sermon that they that they can enter that door with you towards the room of proposition. Mm, fascinating. And now we come to my generation, the generation, yeah. the generation X's. Now uh, we're a most unusual generation. Um, I was I was sta- absolutely staggered in the book, Daryl, to find out from your statistics in the states that something like a between about what 70 and 80 percent of the of that generation around about 2011 i've written down here a staggering 80 percent of generation x's identified as christian in the states in 2011 that is a staggering that's a staggering number of people of my generation who identify as christians i agree that is a staggering i would expect the number to be lower is what we're saying right Mm, yeah well i I mean how did we how did we end up with so many generation X's be identifying as Christian? I think we end up with that. First of all, you know, <laughs> and uh, you know, I partner with my friends at Barnard Group. So when we talk about identifying as Christians, you can get down to the nuts and bolts theologically of what that actually means. And so it could be Christians, nominal Christians only. But I think the the way we got to Xers identifying as Christian. Is because I don't think X, I think Xers were the first generation where the concept of post-Christianity really set its, its roots into American culture. And so what that means is they could be Christian, but also pluralistic. You know, yeah, I believe intellectually in Christ, historically in this figure called Christ, but that doesn't mean exclusively I believe in it. And that doesn't mean exclusively I am beholden to or per se obedient to you know, the doctrinal codes that stem out of this, this confession of faith. So I think we have so many who acknowledge or identify as Christian, perhaps because they're nominal Christians and also because of the post-Christian culture. You can be Christian, but that don't mean you have to only be Christian. Um, I think, too, if you, you know, notice the trend of the church uh, in our parts of the world, the, the mega church really... Boomers and Xers were the target of the megachurch, and megachurches really situated themselves and their strategies around those, those points of views. And so intellectual, intellectual language is what I would describe as the language of, of, of Xers. And many of them have, have had their brains you know, stimulated and their intellect broadened by some of the great orators and, you know, speakers and preachers with biblical and extra biblical content to support those ideologies. So they can identify as Christian because, you know, that you can be Christian without only being Christian. If you look at it from a pluralistic standpoint, plus also, you know, with the rise of the mega church and the target audience being those two generations, 
many of them were probably loosely connected to churches. Not that doesn't necessarily mean they were lifelong obedient disciples of the Lord, but that is a shocking figure and a shocking number. Yes, and when I think about it, in, in the New Zealand context where I live, uh, a large number of my peers have become Christian in the last 20 or 30 years since I was at school with them, a, a significant, a staggeringly significant number. Um, anyway, so but, so you mentioned the exes, university educated, many of them more intellectually minded. What do they look for in a good sermon then, Generation X person? I think Generation X is, is, the, is the pivot, right? I think Generation X is where people are no longer content to come to church and leave their brains in the car. When I make that statement in the book, I'm not accusing elders or boomers of not being smart. What I'm saying is, is that definite factors of intellect must be intentionally present for Xers to respect the preacher and the preacher's point of view. There must be a definite, clear, obvious um, example of intellect. That is in content, quality of content quotes, extra biblical sourcing and support. Uh, uh, it's also in a, a definite structure, an intellectual train of thought that that experts can follow along. And I think the, re the reason that generation sees the world that way is the tension between being highly educated, post-secondary education, but also being let down, their trust being taken advantage of through broken families and you know, uh, you know, uh, political scandal and major, you know, employers, um, you know, causing issues for for workers while CEOs float away on on golden parachutes. So it's a, it's a rise in intellect and a decrease in trust, and that tension, I think, is where the preacher has to stand to earn an audience with Gen Xers. Mm, makes sense to me. Yeah, absolutely. I really related. I related to. I could see myself in the description of, in your book of a Generation X listener to, wow. to to preaching. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. Now, yeah, I did because I thought, yeah, I I actually really do enjoy a good solid academic debate and a good with a good intellectual background. And I would much prefer. I, I I'm honest about it. I would much prefer listening to a preacher who can really knows their scholarship and can back it up with with facts. Um, so there we go. But now millennials, uh, yeah. <laughs> that's your generation, isn't it? That is my generation. A great generation. I love the millennials. How Thank do? You. Yeah, absolutely. How do the millennials differ from the X's, and why? I think the millennials we we, we compound on the X's. So it's not just intellect; it's intellect with a voice that we demand to be heard. Is this demand for two-way communication? So it's not just that I'm gonna listen to your intellectual sermon and grade you in my mind of being effective or ineffective. It's also that I desire for you in turn to listen to my voice or at least listen to some of the other voices that influence my train of thought. So millennials compound on excellence. We take intellect to the level of interchange. Like there must be a, a sense of dialogue and back and forth. This is no longer just a one-way stand and deliver, preach at you sermon. This now must sound like you are listening to, and your mind is as well open to some other points of views that may quite frankly disagree with you, with the Bible, <laughs> with theology, uh, you know, with, with your proposition. 
And, and the preacher must display openness to that because millennials, we have been shaped in a world where we all have our own platforms via social media. We are very interconnected technologically via online gaming, uh, you know, you know, the internet, how robust it is, all these social media platforms. We all have our own, so to speak, outlet to give our opinions about a range of things, including religion, relationships, politics, you know, current events, finances, even if, even if we're not qualified to speak on these topics, that's beside the point. The point is we too have a, a platform so we demand to be heard, or we at least expect to be heard. One of the fascinating things, I, I love talking to millennials. I have a, a dear friend of mine who's a millennial. I sat down with him fairly early on in our friendship over coffee in a cafe, and he opened up to me, and he said, you know, Brent, one of the things I find really frustrating about churches, he said, is that they only seem to be open on Sundays. He couldn't work that out. <laughs> I said, well, some churches are open all the week round, you know, they have ministry. <laughs> But what was really important talking to him was authenticity, that churches walk the walk and talk the talk, that it wasn't just enough for the preacher to stand up on a Sunday morning. This person had to see, and his generation wanted to see authenticity. They needed to see that this person lived the life 24-7. Yep. Is, that, is that in keeping with your research? Oh, it's, it definitely is. So before I get in book, I get into each generation independently and talk about that generation is language and culture. But prior to that, there are five characteristics that I share that if we were to cultivate these characteristics as speakers, it would immediately make us more intergenerational in our communication. And authenticity is one of the five. Particularly when you get to the millennial group and younger because we can sniff out hyper-emotionalism, hyper we can sniff out you know, my mystical hyper-spirituality, uh, uh, and quite frankly, inauthenticity. And so, whereas in older generations, the more, the less the people knew about their preacher, as long as the preacher was a good preacher, they, they would listen to him. In my generation, we need the persona of preacher and person to be one in the same, such that when you go from your normal life into a pulpit to preach, you don't even have to change clothes. You don't have to change your voice to sound more authoritative and spiritual. You don't have to wield these spiritual titles to gain, you know, power over us. We, we want you to be who you are, wherever you are. And, uh, and I think preachers in this way should take our cues from, uh, from social media stars, from in entertainers. When someone can take a device in their hand and live stream into what's happening at the home of their favorite entertainer, their favorite movie, uh, you know, a star or their favorite politician, and they can see live, real time what's happening in their life, then they would expect their preachers to also be transparent, authentic, with an open door <laughs> policy where there's no separation between who I am on Sunday and who I am on Tuesday. Mm. Yes, and so dialogue is very important to to yeah. um, millennials. We better just we've just got time. We'll let, we better deal with Generation Z now. Is Generation Z a more anxious generation? Do you think than the other generations? I would say, I would say there there's more anxiety around their life stage 
than it is around their generational point of view. When I say those two things, here's what I mean. For Gen Z, they will enter adulthood through stages. There are more stages between childhood and adulthood for them that can create anxiety. So there's childhood, adolescence, uh, young adulthood, emerging adulthood, then adulthood. So the way life stages have been complicated, now culture is, is redefining what it means to be an adult. And that's typically not until you're about 30 or you can afford your own mortgage or you get married and have kids, which a lot of Gen Zers are punting and postponing to later. So there's this concept of extended adolescence. What that means is for a Gen Zer at 24, they could have one or two college degrees and still not know what they want to do with their life compared to their boomer grandparents who at 20 years old probably entered a career that they held down for 35 years. And so there's anxiety around how the life stages are viewed sociologically. That is where I see the anxiety. As far as the generational culture, I think that, uh, that their desire is to just be related to in a healthy way, you know, um, to, be, to be valued for humanity and not be devalued for lack of life experience, lack of position, lack of power, lack of authority, these things they cannot have <laughs> because of, um, you know, the, the nature of the fact that they're young, that they're yeah, older, so, 22 years old. So Yeah, so, so they're looking for relationships and in preaching, yep. I suppose, relational preachings, a preacher that they can relate yes. to who relates to them, who forms a personal yes. relationship with them. Am I correct? Yes, you are correct. Not just a preacher who knows what the Bible says, but a preacher who knows how people feel. Yeah. A preacher who is transparent, not primarily just charisma, not my personality is magnetic. No, my heart is open, not just oratorically gifted. Yeah, I'm good with words. No, 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 no. My mind is open. My heart is open. And that's apparent in, in my approach and in my interchange. It, it establishes and builds trust uh, for Gen Zers who... At the life stages they're in, that trust and stability in a preacher is something they're looking for. So if we can just go through the generations, we've got the elders who like authoritative uh, preaching with yeah. lots of lots of propositions. Uh, we've got the um, boomers who like skepticism. We have the my generation, the uh, Xs who like intellect. Uh, we have the millennials who want dialogue. And we have the Zers, if I can call them that, who want relationships okay having established all that daryl i'm a pastor in a church how on earth on a sunday morning <laughs> do i reach across for those generations how about i mean we'll take it in two parts first of all what does a truly intergenerational church ministry look like let's ask yeah. that one first i try to encourage pastors because i know that this is a lot to wrap our arms around when we think practically about programming uh, weekly preaching and stewardship of resources. It has to get down in a very practical way for the local church pastor to see how does this play out without splintering what we already have going on. How do we how do we broaden and grow? So that's a great question. I think first off, the first step to a church becoming intergenerational is for each generation that's in that church or each generation that church desires to reach 
to have equitable representation at the highest table of influence for that church. So what I mean by that is if that church, let's say we got a boomer exer church that wants to reach Gen Z, we understand that Gen Zers are too young and inexperienced to sit on church boards or become deacons or senior pastors, but they can have equitable representation through compassion for their lived experience that the people at the table, although in a different generation, are intentionally studying, reading, building relationships with people of that generation. So when I say equitable influence, I mean we can't have the highest table of influence can't be all baby boomers who only look out for the interests of people in their age group and life stage if that church is intent on reaching millennials and Gen Z. So that means that pastors have to get, you know, creative about the way influence happens in their churches and also consider maybe adding some seats to the table that can be occupied by people of different age groups. Despite, for me, I'm a millennial pastor. If I really want my church to be intergenerational, I can't have all millennials at the highest table of influence. I have to also have seats at the table occupied by Xers and boomers uh, as well in order to truly have an equitable representation for people in that cohort and life stage. That's the first clearest, I think, step that, that we can take. Mm-hmm. Time is just about up. Final question. Uh, come back to my original question, really. You're a pastor and preaching on a Sunday morning. Your church might have representatives from every generation sitting in front yeah. of you. How and can you <laughs> tailor your message so that you're touching base with the whole constituency, mm-hmm. if I can put it like that, with the answers? The yes. How would you do that? Great question. So we already know <laughs> that preaching Faithful preaching alone is already a mountain-sized task that pastors have to try to reach every week. To be effective intergenerationally, I understand complicates it, but I hope that the book simplified it. Here's some of the ways you can do it, very practically, okay? First of all, I think it would help if the pastor has planned out their preaching for an extended amount of time. Let's say an annual preaching plan. In that annual preaching plan, you can subdivide the months in creative ways. You could either say, hey, for this month, we want to try to reach and build up our millennial-led families. And so we're going to develop our preaching during the month of April in a way that can can attract or speak to millennial-led families. That's one way to do it. Here's another way you could do it. Let's say if you decided that the month of April would be the month that you talk about the resurrection of Jesus, right? Resurrection Sunday was this month. Let's say if we said we're going to speak about the resurrection during the month of April, you could approach it this way. The first week, we will shape our language propositionally. The second week, we'll shape it intellectually. The third week, we'll shape it biologically. The fourth week, we'll shape it relationally. Meaning you can take the same concept, the same sermonic or theological concept, and instead of moving to new concepts every week, take the same concept and, and communicate it in a different generational language for that particular week. Now, how do we do this in a way when all generations are present without alienating any generation? What pastors have that, that traveling preachers don't have is pastors have built-in influence and equity. So pastors could leverage that to create a heart for the generations in their churches by doing something as simple as this. All right, y'all, it's the month of April. 
and we want to reach our millennial-led families during this month. Now, if you are not a millennial, if you're not in this generation, that's okay. We want you present in worship because you have millennials in your life that we know you care about, that you love, that God has sent into your life, that God has put you into relationship with. And as we address millennials this month, focusing specifically on families, we hope to display for you what it looks like to better connect with people of this most important generation in our community and our church. And so what we do is we tell the boomers, hey, we may not be targeting you in this sermon or in this sermon series, but you can be a student during this sermon or sermon series that will sharpen your ability to better communicate with the millennials or what have you in your personal life. Because there are many spheres of application for these generational languages, particularly when it comes to the gospel. And so we want our people to be equipped and feel confident in, in, in their ability to, to reach other people. And so we can display that for those preachers. I hope that helps. Was that? Yes, absolutely. And that was fantastic. Yep. And uh, Daryl Hall, thank you so much for your time. Uh, his yes. book, Speaking Across Generations, is published by InterVarsity Press, IVP America. And uh, and thanks, as always, to our creative team at Liquid Edge, who sponsor this podcast and take care of things behind the scenes. Daryl, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Brent. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the God Story Podcast. To ensure you never miss an episode, please subscribe. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please take a moment to give us a rating and leave a review. This will help more people discover God's story for themselves. If you'd like to get in touch or learn more, please visit godstorypodcast.com. We'd love to hear from you. That's godstorypodcast.com.